Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Brian Tetta, executive producer of The View. It's Tuesday, and today we're doing something different. Alyssa Farah Griffin is sitting down with her friend and former White House colleague, Cassidy Hutchinson, to talk more about their time working for former President Trump and how it brought them closer together. This is Behind the Table. I'm so excited to be joined by one of my closest friends, Cassidy Hutchinson, whose new book, Enough, is out today. She reflects on her time in the Trump White House and then ultimately testifying against him in the January 6th hearings. So, Cassidy, I have to ask, what was it like being on The View today? How was the show? Alyssa, if we could go back three years, would you think that either of us would be sitting here today? (laughs) It is surreal. That is sort of how I feel about all of this. You know, I I never saw myself in a position of being in the public eye really ever at all. But I think that also speaks to the consequence of this moment and how it's important to have voices like ours mm-hmm. out there that are willing to talk about the dangers of Donald Trump. And I'm very grateful and incredibly moved by the opportunity to be here with you today on The View. I mean, and also you, very proud of you. for. Oh, I'm beyond I, proud isn't the right word. I'm in awe of you. I don't know that I could have done what you've done. And I'm just the, the book is phenomenal. Um, I think that what I've always known about you is you're someone who you love being behind the scenes. You were kind of I f- call you the, the chief of staff to the chief of ch- staff in the White House. Um, so it's got to be a little bit weird now to be on national TV sitting at a table with Whoopi Goldberg and Joy <laughs> Behar. What was that like? They're very, very kind. Um, you know, I <laughs> I didn't ever see myself in the position of being in the public eye. And I also didn't have social media. So it's sort of like, you know, I testified and overnight my face was all over the all over the Internet. But it was just that one picture in the white blazer. <laughs> so now I'm slowly coming out of this and, you know, stepping into this role. It's a little daunting. I'm not going to lie, because I. I know the gravity of this moment, and I want to be a responsible voice in this sphere. But you know, even the conversation with Whoopi and Joy, it, it was productive. And I yeah. think that's what we need to all take away from this. Like We need to be able to have these productive conversations. And that's what I hope to accomplish in the book, too. Uh, you and I have talked about this because I think— you know, you and I are still Republicans and we hope to remain Republicans. We hope there's a party we can believe in. But for this republic to work, we need, you know, even our Democrat friends like Joy and like Whoopi mm-hmm. to um, come alongside us and be able to have like legitimate conversations about the future of the country. And we know we're going to disagree on certain things. But I feel like Trump took it so far a direction that it's like we're not even on the same playing field. Right. No, we're at this point where we are arguing about Trumpism versus normal politics. Like I, I want to get to the day where we can have a conversation with Democrats that's not about Trump. Mm-hmm. It's not about trying to defend the Republican Party against the MAGA movement, the Trump movement. We can have actual policy discussions that are productive yeah. because nothing's productive right now when we're arguing against a man who is trying to take over our government to save his own ego. 
Completely, completely. Now, um, for background for listeners at home, um, so we became friends when I went back to the White House in April of 2020. You were, as I said, working as kind of chief of staff to the chief of staff. I was comms director. And I've told you this before, but like you and I had a soul connection. I've only Mm -hmm. had one other friend in my life where basically as soon as I spent time with you, I was like, we're going to be friends forever. We just got each other humor, values, like the way we did our jobs. Um, But you... You do talk about in the book, like you, to me, you were, you were a rock to me. We, you tell a story of like when we were in Las Vegas, we, you, me and Kaylee McEnany all were like, oh, we won't stay in our own rooms. We're going to all stay together and have a sleepover. Like we were genuinely friends. Um, But that was also kind of changed after I spoke out. And you write about this in the book. There was also a moment that I didn't write about in the book. And I feel, I just, I want to give that time, that piece a little credit too, because you left Long before I did. I mean, I left on the 20th, but you left, I think, believe December 3rd, 4th, yeah. December 4th, 2020. Um, and I remember sitting in your office that night and it was your last night at the White House. And you were at so much peace and it, it but it was a great moment between us. Like I was devastated mm-hmm. you were leaving. And in my mind then, you know, I wasn't ready to leave. I knew I wasn't going to leave. But I was almost happy to see you go, not because I wanted to get rid of you. I wanted you to stay, but I, I could see how much peace that moment had for you. And you were so confident in that decision and you had done your job. So, you know, I just I want to give that moment credit to you because you you've always been very steadfast and confident in, this, in the decisions that you have made. By the way, I think about this all the time. My husband, and I, Justin, who you know very well, mm-hmm. my husband loves you. Um, we talk about like what impresses us so much about you and your moral courage is the fact that you basically did this alone. You're you're not married. You basically were like, I'm walking away from the world I know, the friends I know, the career opportunities I have, and I'm doing this. Like I at least I, I was at peace in that moment. I knew it was the right thing to do, but I, I tr- attribute a lot that I'm like I had a husband to fall back on. I had a like this life that was separate from politics, and that's why I put your courage on such a pedestal because you literally like jumped without a life raft, and it's so important that you did. I I agree to some of those things, but I will push back a little bit and I backtrack briefly to the six. You and I had very similar feelings about mm-hmm. January 6th. You were already gone, though. I was still at the White House. January 7th, you spoke out against the Trump administration. I had very strong feelings. I was very outspoken internally with my colleagues, with our former mm-hmm. boss, Mark Meadows. And I remember seeing you on TV that day and just being filled with this not even anger, but disappointment and hurt. And I, I try to, I try to come to terms with that and try to dissect it and understand it in my mind. But I, you know, I really believe in that moment. And, you know, I, there was a side of me that felt like you were being disloyal, mm-hmm. which I look back on now and that's completely irrational. I should never have felt that way because I felt the same way, but I couldn't conceptualize how I could get to that point yeah. without breaking the connections and without breaking the status quo because I was so ingrained in that environment and I was set to move to Florida mm-hmm. with the former president. Um, you know, I say all of this, so I was upset with you. We we did reconcile uh, about a month later, but you say I didn't have a life raft. I, that's the part that I disagree with because when I was, you know, I spent the year and a half, I had been subpoenaed by the committee. You had initially reached out to me to go talk to the committee behind the scenes an offer that I declined um, for various reasons, which I discussed in the book. But, um, you know, once I had this moment where I I knew I was on the wrong track, I had separate counsel and I knew that I had been evading the committee's questions. I knew that I wasn't being completely forthcoming with the committee. And, you know, I hate to sound dramatic, but I, I really was having trouble sleeping at night. Mm-hmm. 
and I reached out to you and you didn't have to respond to me. You didn't have to help me, but I was ended up on your doorstep and you welcomed me inside and you helped me get to this point. So you say all this and you praise my courage and I'm grateful for that, Alyssa, I am, but it, I, I would not be sitting here today without you and without you speaking out first on January 7th. Oh, well, thank you. And I remember that night so well. I do it was too. Like, what I love about you is like our friendship. We always pick up where we left off, but it's that was soul, like... Soul that, connection. It's a soul connection. But that was one of the weirder ones because like, this sounds lame, but like one of my greatest regrets is that you weren't at my wedding, but we were not... We That we was one of the periods the we play, weren't yeah. in the same friendship place. But that day, like when you came over, there was a little bit of like sniffing it out and awkwardness. And also, we were I remember I said to you, I almost asked to meet you at the Smithsonian. That way I could see if you went through a metal detection. Literally, we were. This is how paranoid, though, Trump world makes you. It really does. I would like I was worried. Like, wait, is she recording this? You were like, like, I think you jokingly (laughs) asked if I was wearing a wire. And I was like, what did this world turn us into? one, I'm sorry two, if I have not apologized for that. I'm sorry, but it is completely irrational, not normal. But it just, it's not normal. Like two very like good friends being like, wait, is the other one? But Only because we're, we, I we, wanted to be on your side. I had the same feelings as you, but I, I wasn't there. I was sort of on a different planet at the time. And well, I was straddling between the two worlds that I, I was straddling between the world I was in that I did not want to be in. But I, I then I had another foot. Well, really, it was a toe in the world I wanted to be in and wanted yeah who I wanted to be, I just, I couldn't make that leap. Well, and I think something that can't get lost in this conversation, what I related to a ton in your book is you're having tremendous financial struggles. Like I come from, like, honestly, I didn't feel financially stable until I was older than, like much older than you are. And you wanted to do the right thing. And a big part of it was like, you didn't have enough to pay. Like people don't realize these attorneys cost as much as $10,000 a month, if not more. And part of what we discussed that night and ended up, um, you know, you were able to end up like thankfully to find with somebody who would represent you mm-hmm. pro bono and your amazing attorney, Bill um, and Jody were just believed in you and what your testimony meant for the country mm-hmm. that you were able to do that. But that I think that's something people need to know is it was there's the moral wrestling you're having. There's the emotional. There's also just the tangible yeah. of like I, you weren't in a position to just go jump and get some high powered attorney. Yeah. So no, I uh, once I was in the, com- the committee put a press release out that listed my name as I was going to receive a subpoena, but I had not yet been served that subpoena. And I spent almost two full months, two and a half months searching. And when I say searching, I had an Excel spreadsheet with hundreds of attorneys that I had reached out to looking for affordable counsel or pro bono counsel, Mm -hmm. because this is such, I mean, now it has come to a federal indictment where it is the largest federal indictment that the U.S. government has ever brought. This is the biggest case that the U.S. government has ever seen. But you know, at that point, I think some attorneys saw the trajectory this was going in and they couldn't work pro bono. I didn't have financial mm-hmm. resources, but I did all this because I didn't want to have a Trump appointed attorney mm-hmm. because I had seen on the inside, you know, seeing how other people had retained Trump attorneys. You know, it's my view and having some experience with it now, you're not just working. It's not just your interests that are being represented. Right. And some of that is said in a very discreet way but it's also just the mentality you, right. you you know that if you're going to be in that situation that it's you're looking out for somebody that's not just yourself we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. This is according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash view. Just go to Indeed.com slash view right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash view. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Woodward and Bernstein. Pen and paper. Wine and cheese. What about the perfect pairing when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're delivering daily digests or serving sensational scoops, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com view, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com view now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com view. Step into the world of Hollywood like never before with Melissa Rivers' group text podcast. Melissa, renowned for her red carpet expertise and storytelling prowess, invites you to join her and her famous friends for hilarious and heartfelt conversations. From discussing the latest binge-worthy TV shows, navigating the highs and lows of life, and dissecting celebrity fashion, there is never a dull moment. With exclusive stories from special guests like Chelsea Handler, Cheryl Hines, your favorite reality stars, and deep dives into intriguing topics like the Where is Wendy Williams documentary, this podcast offers an insider's look into the glitz and glam of Tinseltown. It's not just Melissa's podcast. It's a collective experience where you're invited to join the conversation. So if you've ever wanted to peek behind the Hollywood curtain, subscribe to Melissa Rivers' group text podcast now on your favorite platform. Get ready for laughter, tears, gossip. In other words, unforgettable moments that'll keep you coming back for more. 
Don't miss out. This is one group text you won't want to exit. Listen, in this crazy chaotic period that every day was like not one fire, it was 50 fires, Mm -hmm. there were some hilarious moments. One that stood out to me in the book because I remember this so well. So Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, doesn't drink. He hasn't in like 30 (laughs) plus years. But um, staff, because they'd host events on his back patio and stuff, would keep white claws, like spiked seltzers in his refrigerator. And he's at a meeting with the former director of OMB, who's like a devout Mormon, and he's just chugging white claws. Mark also, a just for the record, only drinks uh, sparkling water. Yes, yes. So he doesn't drink flat water. And he's like too down in that he starts realizing, like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I remember that because I walked into the chief's office and you were like, oh my gosh, I, was like, so I got I him drunk. <laughs> well, that, and that was right after. So Mark and I were both out with COVID, and this was after the election. So it was the election happened we, that we had lost. Yes. And and now we're back after about 10 days of quarantining, but we're starting to file the lawsuits. Mm-hmm. He's in this meeting with Russ Vote. It's my first day back. It's Mark's first day back. I go in at one point because his meeting wraps and Mark's drunk on the couch. And then the president's <laughs> coming downstairs who also doesn't drink. And <laughs> Mark's like, don't tell anyone. Nothing <laughs> a coffee and a sandwich will fix. <laughs> um, okay, I was trying to think of some of my favorite memories. You're going to hate this one. Do you oh, remember God. the story of you falling down the stairs on Air Force One? <laughs> You had the, the best dramatic retelling about it. I wasn't actually there, but basically you're getting off the plane with like the press corps following you. So, like, yeah. yeah, you tell it. <laughs> so that day, I, and I, off the top of my, there was something going on at the White House. This was around the George Floyd protests. Mm-hmm. I had gone onto Air Force One early and expecting Mark to fly in with on Marine One. All of a sudden, I got a notification from the Secret Service saying that Mark didn't make it on Marine One. And then I got a call saying that he had to stay back at the White House to deal with some catastrophe that was going on. I had to get off the plane. The president, so I I slung my bag over my shoulder and I start booking it down the stairs on Air Force One, which are very narrow. The press corps is behind me, half of them are already outside. I have this massive travel bag. One thing after led to another, and all of a sudden, I just started tumbling down the stairs of Air Force One. It was especially horrible about this is I grabbed a handful of grapes as we were getting off the plane. I land face first, and the grapes are smashed into my chest. My shoes had fallen off my feet, and I just got up, and I kept running. And the press like, pulls all I there, had too. To get so back like... to Mark. I had to get back to Mark. Um, but that was that's emblematic of our daily lives. It was lives. everything it was, just, was chaotic. It, things change in 30 seconds, and you might have a skin near. You might have a, a broken oval office. Yeah. But... You, you just keep going. Um, by the way, Joy Behar is going to definitely bring that up next time I criticize Joe Biden for tripping. So she's like, well, Cassidy's 25. <laughs> it's very easy. I will give Joe Biden credit on that. It, it is. It's when actually people very attacking steep. him for that. I've, I did come to his defense, not publicly because I didn't have social media, but I have tripped on those stairs. Yeah. OK, so I wanted to ask you, like we big picture, we we're both Republicans. We believe in this party. We're we're joking over the weekend that like we can't wait to someday serve in the Liz Cheney White House. We could if I could will that into existence. <laughs> it doesn't feel real right now. I think for a lot of Republicans like us, it feels like a foregone conclusion that it's going to be Trump. Um, I fault a lot of that on, frankly, not enough Republicans running against him hitting his unfitness Mm -hmm. like you know just taking shots about he didn't do this on the border he didn't do this on china those are side issues as far as i'm concerned what do you what would you like to hear from republicans in the race now and like what could do you think could help move the tide you know it's hard Alyssa, because i think that many of the candidates that have already declared that, that as that they're running for the nomination are sort of falling into that pattern of 
repeating what he says because they don't want to tick him off. You know, I think that looking at the candidates now, we need to have a change in the tone of the conversation. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, we can't keep promoting this vitriolic language or just how we're attacking people and instilling this doubt in, in the American people about some called two-tiered system of justice. The Republican Party right now has moved so far from the Republican Party that we identify mm-hmm. with. It is not responsible governing, whether it was Democrats or Republicans doing mm-hmm. this, to instill a doubt in the American people that there's only one person or there's only one agenda that can save yeah. our institutions. And once we can get to that point where we can have productive conversations with Americans, where we can open their eyes to the actual dangers that we're facing. You know, I, I don't think that it, in my I don't think it starts with some big elaborate policy discussion. I think it has to start with look at how far gone we are. Look at how we're treating people. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to explain to my kids why we are electing people who are brutal and nasty mm-hmm. and have no interest in going to Congress or running for president to actually legislate and make America a better country and Mm. keep our place on the world stage. But the language has taken precedent over that. And I think that right now that's probably, in my opinion, now you might have a contrasting one, but that's, we need to reframe the conversation back to what we believe is productive for the Republican Party. Because, you know, if, if Trump is the nominee in 2024, I don't know if I could call myself a Republican anymore because I... I don't identify with the current Republican politics. I wrestle with that. I mean, and I think that something that's been really hard to watch is is people and figures we knew very well um, in the Trump administration, whether cabinet, whether staff level, who we know many of them are smarter than us, have more advanced degrees than us, have made more money than us. But they know what they saw that we saw on January 6th. And frankly, a lot of things before that. This is not just a January 6th right. thing. But January 6th to me was the the highlight of his unfitness it, in the mo- yes. like the most profound way. That I see them, it feels like they're just kind of waiting out a potential opportunity in the next Trump administration, which to them, I say, like, you saw how bad it was when he was still had to run for reelection. So he couldn't pursue his worst instincts every time he wanted to do something that was so far off the rails. They'd remind him you have to win another election. This time he won't be burdened by that. Like, what scares you the most about a second Trump presidency? I think what scares me the most looking at it right now and again, feel free to disagree or add in your insight to this too, but it's the people that would surround him because now we've had this period where even the rational people that left before J6 Mm -hmm. or that were there in the first two years, whoever it might have been, rational people that you and I still talk to that don't really want to come out against him, they see how dangerous this is. And I'm putting aside whether or not people have spoken out, just people who are rational are not going to want to be around him. One, you are likely going to face insurmountable legal fees. There's no incentive, in my opinion. I'm very happy with where I'm at and I'm very proud of where I'm at. But I also, with your help, I I found my second chance. Mm. I wouldn't be in this position today without you and without my new attorneys and without Liz Cheney, who is one of the most courageous women I think this country has ever had been blessed to have as a citizen because Mm. she is just, she's she's emblematic of what we all need to be. But that aside... I think the second term, if he was to run and win for a second term, he would have people around him that were around him at the end of his first term. People like Mike Lindell or Patrick Byrne or Mike Flynn, these people who spout poisonous conspiracy theories and that he listens to. 
that's what's dangerous because then we're moving in a direction that's not even effective policymaking. That yeah. is warping the minds of people and that is that is destroying our democracy as we know it. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't say it better myself. I think one of the hardest things about speaking out was you know, your world's flipped upside down. There's the death threats. Um, you and I both dealt with family estrangements. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's something that's like tremendously hard. But also the loss of friendships um, like in within Trump world. I You know this. I I was very close with Kaylee McEnany. I mm-hmm. thought she was one of my best friends. I was ready to make her a bridesmaid. And we actually had to falling out a little bit before the end of the administration. Um, what Talk to me about what it it was like having to lose some of those friendships that you truly valued. I mean, you, you and you don't have to like, name yeah, names specifically, no, but you allude to it in the book. And, yeah, I, um, you know, it's, it sort of is an odd thing for me even to think or talk about now, because that was something that I had very well prepared for, for a year and a half before I had retained my first attorney and before I had switched legal counsel. Um, you know, I, I knew if I ever were to make the break, like once you're out, you're out. And that's also one of the more toxic elements that I think is under underreported or under talked about about mm-hmm. the Trump world is if you are not with them, you are against them. Yeah. So I mentally I had prepared myself for that. I, I was hoped I could have kept some of my friends, but I hadn't expected to. I think in this past year, I've accepted it more and on a deeper level because you're a reflection of the company that you keep. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't thinking like this at the time. You know, I, I knew I could lose them and I had sort of made peace with that. It still hurt him. Like that's it was still hard. But at the same time, I almost felt more liberated. Mm-hmm. And even though I hurt more in the relationships, you don't always have to have closure. And, you know, I I'm at peace with what where they're at. I don't have any resentment towards mm-hmm. them for the decisions that they have made. Because I would want them if if they if any of our former friends in Trump world ever felt that they wanted to get to where we are, if they wanted to make that leap, I would want to welcome them because I know how it felt to feel alone. And I had you mm-hmm. and you are the company that you keep. And I I was in a cage of these people that I wanted to be friends with. And I almost felt at times like I was forcing this friendship yeah. with, but I wasn't being my authentic self. I think what you just said is so important because I find myself getting you know, upset with some of the people who've maybe chosen not to speak out. But it's important to have peace about it, because if any of them change their mind, I would want them to know that they'd have an open door to come to either of us to try to, like, chart a path forward and figure right. out. Because it's like you, it's never too late. Like, no, that's it's the never thing. too late. Even if you've made t- I have I have I hold myself accountable. I made a lot of mistakes. I don't have some hero complex over here. At least I don't think I hold myself accountable to all of my mistakes and probably mistakes that are not my mistakes, but I still hold myself accountable to those. And, you know, but I think opening that door and letting people know that there's forgiveness and there's also another side of this and we need to welcome those people. We at least need to create an environment where it's welcoming. And I, again, I think back to the year where we were friends like we had made up but we weren't really hanging out all that often and I saw what was happening to you and you continued to use your voice you continued to take that courageous stance and this is selfish it made me sometimes more afraid because I felt okay I I'm in this world if I go out of it I'm just my motivations are going to be questioned I, I don't think that that's fair I think that we need to be welcoming and receptive you might need to explain yourself and yeah. I think that that's warranted I'm happy to explain yeah. myself but we we can't just chastise people. And that in my thing, my my message to anyone who's like wrestled with speaking out and hasn't been able to is 
someday you're going to look in the eyes of your kids if you're lucky mm-hmm. enough to have them and you want to be able to you want them to be proud of what you did in a moment that required courage. And even if it's two years after the fact, three years, like I still root for that to happen. I have one last question. Okay. You have so much in front of you in a dream scenario. Where is Cassie Hutchinson in five years? Can I do one year in five years? Yes. Okay. In this next year, I think, is one of the most consequential years in American history, at least in recent American history, because we very well could be looking at a ticket where it is Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee and Donald John Trump as the Republican nominee. I think that we all need to contribute to the effort to make sure that he is not ever on that ticket. So I plan to be doing what I can effectively and responsibly in this next year to ensure that that doesn't happen, because I think that if if that is what we're facing and if Joe Biden were not to win, like we are looking at a grave danger that our democracy has never faced. It faced the greatest test that it ever has on January 6th. And I don't want to enter an era where we're facing four years of January 6th events. My five year answer might be a little cliche and I'm sorry about that. But in five years, I want I want to feel safe and secure in myself. But I also want to feel safe and secure about what we're doing now and see the fruits of our efforts start to pay off. I, I want to get back to a place where we're living in a country that we're proud of and where we, where we can have productive conversations. It's not going to happen overnight. If, if something were to happen to Trump or if Trump were just to drop off this and just take a quiet life, the, the movement is still there. It is still going to take work to come back from that. You know, so I personally, I want to feel safe. I have, I've, and you too, but we have had a difficult few years. But I think in five years, I I want to be living in a country where we all feel safe in our institutions and in our communities. Beautifully said. Thank you so <laughs> a much. Cliche, but that's, it's <laughs> no, it was perfect. And I want you to find a lovely husband who we can go on double dates with with Justin. <laughs> this is. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining, um, Cassidy Hutchinson. I'll not third wheel with you, Justin, <laughs> yes, anymore. You can also third wheel. Her new book, Enough, is out today wherever books are sold. Thank you. Thank you, the view. <laughs> Thank you to Alyssa and Cassidy. Tomorrow, I'm back with Joy Behar. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of Hollywood like never before with Melissa Rivers' Group Text Podcast. Melissa, renowned for her red carpet expertise and storytelling prowess, invites you to join her and her famous friends for hilarious and heartfelt conversations. From discussing the latest binge-worthy TV shows, navigating the highs and lows of life, and dissecting celebrity fashion, there is never a dull moment. With exclusive stories from special guests like Chelsea Handler, Cheryl Hines, your favorite reality stars, and deep dives into intriguing topics like the Where is Wendy Williams documentary, this podcast offers an insider's look into the glitz and glam of Tinseltown. It's not just Melissa's podcast. It's a collective experience where you're invited to join the conversation. So if you've ever wanted to peek behind the Hollywood curtain, subscribe to Melissa Rivers' group text podcast now on your favorite platform. Get ready for laughter, tears, gossip. In other words, unforgettable moments that'll keep you coming back for more. Don't miss out. This is one group text you won't want to exit.